jasoncharles.net. Deep talk, deep sounds. And now, cover girl. This is Under the Covers with Claire Connors on jasoncharles.net. Welcome to Under the Covers with Claire Connors, a monthly podcast about the magazine industry and the making of those glossy covers we all know and love. Today we're talking to Carl Arrington, one of the most respected journalists covering pop culture for four decades, the 60s through the 2000s. Writing for huge magazines from People to Time Magazine to Rolling Stone and Us Magazine, and newspapers like the New York Post and the Detroit Free Press. Soon Carl will be launching his own podcast, The Carl Arrington Archive, here on jasoncharles.net. He will share the highlights of many of those cover stories, including talks with Tina Turner, Barry Gibb, Stevie Wonder, Ozzy Osbourne, Mick Jagger, David Bowie, Michael Jackson, and Patti Smith, and of course the always fascinating Madonna, among many, many others. This unique collection of those original audio tapes eloquently captures the voices of those artists at the top of their game in their own words. Carl also covered film, television, and got to speak with famous authors like Nora Ephron, Kurt Vonnegut, and Stephen King. We're so excited about the launch and to have Carl here to talk about his career in magazines, how he got his start in journalism, and what were some of the best and maybe the worst interviews he ever conducted. We'll see if he'll divulge. Welcome, Carl. It is such a pleasure to talk to you and meet you in person. Thank you. Yeah. How are you? Great to be here. Uh, I'm fine. You're I'm good, good today? Yeah, yeah. We've survived the pandemic. We, uh, well, I, I <laughs> yes. wouldn't go that far, but uh, we're still breathing. Thank goodness. I'm glad to hear about that. I'm so interested in your origin story. So where did were you born, raised, and where did you get educated? I uh, was born in Logan, Utah, and I grew up in Utah uh, in a little mountain town. And um, grew up uh, as a devout Mormon, was a missionary in Bolivia. But along the way, I lived in Genoa, Italy, and and attended uh, public schools in Genoa, uh, learning to speak Italian. Uh, I was at Pali High, the famous Pacific Palisades High School, which was sort of ground zero for the 60s in Los Angeles in 1966. To tell you how cool it was, we had the Doors play at our school dance. That okay? You just you know, <laughs> interview over. We do not need to talk anymore. <laughs> wow, that's yeah, amazing. It's a weird thing, but I but I'm basically a Utah boy. Okay, Mormon. Wow. Yeah. Um, interesting that you got into this career considering the debauchery of. Uh, the the subject matter that you jumped into, um, where did you did you go to college or were I did you... go to college? Mm-hmm. I went to Utah State University okay. and uh, studied political science mm-hmm. and journalism. Uh, I thought I was going to write about politics until I went and worked in Washington for about three months in the middle of the Watergate hearings, and so uh, I got to read a lot about uh, politics and learn a lot about it. But also decided that it was uh, there were other more fun things to do than politics. Uh, true, but did you 
get to speak with musicians, with uh, people in pop culture in D.C.? Uh, I did not okay. because I was working in a congressman's office uh-huh. there. Uh, so I, my journalism career started after I graduated. Uh, and the first job that I had was working for sh- a travel magazine for Chevrolet called Friends Magazine. And it was while I was working for Friends Magazine, living in Detroit, that mm-hmm. I decided I want to go to an Elton John concert. And so it started with a lie. I called up the Detroit Free Press and said, I have an interview with Elton John. Then I called up Elton John and said, I am representing the Detroit Free Press. Everybody was on, so it finally came true. And the Detroit Free Press has a a Sunday magazine, the Roto-Gravure. And so the piece that I wrote was a cover story about Elton John in Detroit. And they liked the story that I did for the Roto-Gravure enough that they hired me to be their rock critic. And that was your first cover story. That was my first cover story and my first uh, rock and roll story. Um, did you? Okay, so Elton John, let's get a quick take on that. At what point was he in his career when this happened? What year was uh, that? Uh, so this would have been 1975. Benny and the Jets. Okay. Uh, met him first at CKLW with Rosalie Trombi and uh, traveled around, just kind of followed him on his promotion tour through Detroit, okay. uh, interviewed him, interviewed fans, did a story about the whole phenomenon of a celebrity, what they do when they come to Detroit. And the free press decided that it was time to get a rock critic, and I was the guy. And so that was your, you got the job, like you were permanently working at the Detroit Free press. I, I did. Yeah, yeah, I left there a Friends magazine, the Chevrolet thing, and just dove into it. And I think there was a little bit of perversity in the editors there of hiring what at that point was still a very straight Mormon to uh, be the rock critic. Uh, the, one of my editors said, We must have the only rock critic in the United States that can't spell marijuana. Legally. Can't spell <laughs> Or drink coffee. I mean, <laughs> or drink coffee. I'm relaxed now. Okay. I'm sure. I'm sure you are. Um, do you remember how much time you got with Elton? I know that that back in those days they might have given you complete, you know, a month long access. Or... It was. It was less. I probably talked to him like a half hour over the course of a couple of days. But it was mostly riding around with him, being with the people that were with him, being with his Connie Pappas, his publicist. You know, seeing what his reaction was with fans backstage. So it was something about the whole rock phenomenon that I, I didn't know very much about. Yeah. But I got to see the show. I bet. Oh, that and that's what well, that's what <laughs> that, you that wanted. I know. Ultimately, isn't that what we all that is, want? <laughs> that is. That, that's what I wanted. The we access. Want, we love that. We love that part. So, how long did you stay with that job? I stayed at the Detroit Free Press uh, from nineteen. Uh, let's see, nineteen seventy-five to nineteen seventy-seven. Okay. And, uh, you know, anybody that came to town, there were only two newspapers, the Free Press or the News. And so pretty much anybody that came to town talked to me. Amazing. Did you know at the time that you were that you had this fantastic job or was it just like a job at that point? Well, I I thought it was pretty fantastic. I was 22 years old and I was getting to go to concerts and get my ears blasted out every night. Uh, So I was in heaven during all of this. 
And I was just kind of thrown into this world that uh, existed that was a, so apart from anything else that I'd ever done. Um, and it was the sandbox of life. I, I, I couldn't imagine a better job. So um, did you then move to New York? What was your... What was your... Well, I, I stayed at the Detroit Free Press uh, and had a fabulous time mm -hmm. writing about all kinds of people. Uh, and then... Uh, I was married at the time, and I had dragged away my wife from her uh, Columbia graduate school. Mm. And so I told her, well, when you get a job in New York, we'll move to New York. So she indeed got a job working for Bristol Myers Corporation, and we moved to New York. And about three weeks later, I was working in the New York Post, writing about rock and roll for them. Amazing. So uh, I'm very good friends with Jim Farber from oh, the Daily News. Yeah, he said to say great. hello, by oh, the way. Yeah, um, and great. so I've been, you know, obviously, he, you two must have had very similar, because he started when he was quite young. So you right. must have had very similar. Yeah, yeah similar arcs to yeah. the, the whole thing. Yeah. So at the Post, you weren't doing cover stories. I was not doing cover stories. Uh, I started out when Dorothy Schiff, is that right? The, was the owner of it before Murdoch. I was there pre-Murdoch. There I was getting whole big pages to do stories on Kiss and WPLJ and Dolly Parton. Uh, and then it became more of a music reviewer where I would go to a show at night. <laughs> I would take a taxi down to the post offices and would literally be writing the review as the copy boy is grabbing it and taking it down to the composition room. So how did you break into uh, working at People? Uh, well, I, uh, after the New York Post, I uh, was hired to be the managing editor of Circus Magazine, oh, okay. which was a little out of my area because it's a kind of hair metal, uh, you know, Judas Priest and Black Sabbath, Black and... Sabbath and all of that stuff, um, which was not necessarily my forte, but I could interview anybody at that point. Uh, and uh, Circus Magazine was one more entity, and they had lots of great uh, photography at that point, and I worked with... Uh, David Frick, who became famous oh. at uh, Rolling Stone. Uh, so that was another great time. And while I was working at Circus, I made friends or made contact uh, with people at People Magazine and sent them some clips, and they uh, eventually hired me. after I'd, I think I'd been at Circus Magazine about a year and a half. Got it. And then uh, went to work for People Magazine. So Circus Magazine, I'm going to guess didn't pay the big bucks compared to going to a magazine like People, I'm sure right, you're... Right, right. No, that, that, that was still, yeah, I, was, uh, I wasn't making a lot of money there. But it was super fun. I bet. And going on the road with, you know, whoever it was uh, at that point was, was a lot of fun. So you were the managing editor. Yeah. A and back then that meant many things. It didn't necessarily it, it, it mean It meant you were doing managing. everything. Right. I, it, you know, it was only a title. There were three right. of us, me, Richard Hogan, and David Frick in our same room and we all wrote the entire magazine got it got yeah. it so in terms of putting someone on a cover of circus yeah how did that come about like what was the process it was, uh, it was usually a process of jerry rothberg the mm -hmm. publisher making some deal with the record company to put whoever it is they wanted to 
uh, put out, whether it was Aerosmith or Van Halen or whoever it was, uh, and it was decided apart from me, and then we would drum up a story based on what they thought they wanted to promote that month. Got it. Um, and it was a monthly. It, for a while, it actually was a weekly, That's and they kind of lost their shirts for a while, and then it became a monthly, and then maybe a bi-monthly, and it was a little bit like, I had also worked for Cream Magazine. Right. It was a, Cream was much hipper. Uh, and more, had Lester Bangs after all. Exactly. And um, so Circus Magazine was much more formatted, uh, uh, but it was a monthly. So were you, when you had this more permanent job, did, mm-hmm. were you freelancing for other people at the same time? Was that allowed? Or well, I, did... I, I did not freelance okay. for other people. Uh, when I was at the Detroit Free Press, they let me freelance for Cream Magazine. Okay. Did Pete Townsend and Linda Ronstadt. Uh and went to Japan for three weeks with Kiss for Cream Magazine. Holy and cow. That was the first uh, Kiss tour uh, of Japan and went there for three weeks at uh, Cherry Blossom Time. And it was wild. It was the first big American band. And the the Japanese um, ushers were so strict that if a, a fan stood up in the audience to clap or yell, they had high beam flashlights that they uh, pointed in their eyes. They shamed them with. So, <laughs> and then at the end, they all clapped. Amazing. Um, so, wow. I'm imagining three weeks on the road with a band like Kiss, considering everything that we sort of know about them. Yeah. That must have been incredibly eye-opening for you. Uh, how? I mean, you were a married guy. You're yeah. on the road with this literally, right. like, crazy band. Yeah. Well, there were 10, I think there were 10 journalists, oh, okay. Michael Gross, Bob Wiener, uh, ten of us anyway we became our own little you know traveling junket <laughs> along the way so we had our own squirt gun fights and i would go down to play pachinko with ace freely and then i'd go in and uh, gene would show me his big loose leaf full of polaroids That's of not... hundreds of girls <laughs> naked in various positions of uh undress so uh it was fun i mean yeah got to see hiroshima <laughs> well, that's that's impressive too. Yeah. But um, when you were writing about the bands like that, how how honest could you be? Like, what did the magazine expect you to write about that backstage antics? And yeah. and what did you did you ever make any promises saying you know what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas or do you? I always respected people's private lives. Mm-hmm. I didn't go to orgies, or I, at that point, I hadn't started smoking pot at all. And so I didn't, uh, there wasn't much that was off limits. Mm-hmm. They they probably strayed further than I would have asked them to. I mean, how much more personal can you be than, a, you know, loosely full of hundreds of girls, Polaroid naked? I mean, <laughs> it was all men. Right in the in the entourage. Uh, uh, actually, there was uh, of the ten of us. I think there was two women: Frances Schoenberger of mm-hmm. the Hollywood Foreign Press, famous, and uh, another girl that was she was there promoting Swatch watches. I was never able to figure out her actual connection. Maybe for the Swatch Watch magazine, <laughs> it, it, it's something <laughs> like that. Yeah. No, I was I was curious because you came up at a time 
when you know it was a real male oriented unless it was the star you know on the mm. stage it was a male oriented you know it, it was a very male oriented world mm-hmm. i mean the music business was just sure. that way um there were always females that were around mm-hmm. usually the publicists who i dealt with mm-hmm. and i had a thing about uh interviewing Female artists, so some of the, you know, Carly Simon and Madonna and Jane Sibbery and Pat Benatar and, you know, any number. I I made a point to try and uh, interview these interesting women because a lot of people didn't. Right. Thank you very much. I'm I'm very happy to hear that because, honestly, you know, going into rock and roll, it was always male-oriented. I wrote wrote about musicians a lot, too, and I'm just— you know, it was it was a tough nut to crack. Yeah, let's just no. put it that way. I, I think it was not it was not a very female friendly mm-hmm. uh, environment. Anti female. Yeah, in a way. Yeah, it just it, that was the way the music business was, and th- as a result of it, that's sort of the way the media was yeah. as well. I went on tour briefly with Scorpion. Oh yeah. Uh-huh. And they, um, the female publicist, which uh-huh. um, I'm going to say it, I, I didn't appreciate it at the time, and it's disgusting, but they called her their public tits. <laughs> and it was, I was always sort of taken aback by how, you know, it's thick skinned. The women had thick skins and yeah. they made it through all of that right. stuff, but I would never have been able to do that. Yeah. No, I, I, I know, I know well known publicists today. Mm-hmm. Who their job as a publicist was to stand in front of the audience and find cute girls to give passes to to come backstage. <laughs> nice work if you can get it, I guess. Um, so, do you remember your very first um, cover story for People? And I'm going to concentrate on People mostly because that's yeah. the you know it's still in existence. <laughs> it's still in print. Yeah. Well, I have mixed feelings about it. the first big story I did was a cover story on Carly Simon. Okay. And Carly Simon invited me up to Martha's Vineyard Mm -hmm. to stay at her house and spend three or four days. And we went to the nude beach uh, that she went to and went to the famous uh, restaurant that she owned. Uh, James was on tour at the time, but hung around with her kids. And uh, it was amazing. It was was great. Um, In the course of it, Carly... I tried to say, Carly, remember, it's not me. It's 30 million readers. So just be careful about what you say. You've now been warned. So whatever you say, I'll presume that you want that said. The issue was that finally she ended up, I ended up being kind of a therapist. She talked to me so much. She talked to me about James's heroin addiction and James was not there when her son was going into the hospital to be operated on. And I did not put that stuff, I did not write that stuff into the story. But over the weekend, after I wrote it, one of the editors went in to my notes and got all of that stuff in there and put that all in the story about James. And, and that was the first time it had kind of publicly been known about that. And uh, I did not object. I did not want to be fired. That was the first big story that I did. But I'm told that when Carly read the story, she fainted. That it was that because she and it was a it was a, a they were in a difficult situation in any case. Uh, but of course, I loved Carly, 
and I felt terrible about it. And I don't know that it's the thing that you know broke Carly and James up, but it's. Uh, I was very careful then if it, if I didn't want it in the story, I didn't put it in my notes. I. I think I remember reading that story. It was and juicy. It, it was, was a, a good ver- juicy story. It was a juicy story. But my heart breaks for you. Yeah. No, I felt terrible. I I'm have. Sure all, I, I carried the guilt in the little bag on my sack. I bet. <laughs> I bet it's still painful. It's still a painful yeah. memory. No, it's a, uh, because you, it's protecting the subjects mm-hmm. and and having mutual respect. So it was it was a little bit hard lesson to learn, but I learned it. How did people um, instruct? instruct you and uh, you know the editors i mean because people was a splashy gossipy magazine um Mm. were you were you assigned to get that kind of information those tabloidy moments from people or i i don't know why i don't know why people feel the need to confess personal stories to Mm me but apparently i have some reaction that creates a safe space for them where it becomes a conversation, where it becomes like a therapy session. I become a friendly person as opposed to a, a, a conflicting personality. And that happened to me again and again. And whether that's some, you know, uh, one of the great suggestions that I read was from John McPhee, the, the writer for The New Yorker. He said, if you're getting the same, if you're just getting the pat answers back from them, just look real dumb. And say, really? Uh, could you explain that in other words? You know, I I didn't really have to act that stupid. I probably already looked that way. I was pretty wide-eyed, still am. But you know, you do have a very um, you have a very calm face, and there's a sense about you that um, you because I'm dead inside. <laughs> It could be it could be your Mormon upbringing. Yeah, I don't know yeah, what it is, yeah. but there's a sense that I would so I would totally confess everything to you if you ask the right questions. Huh? So you do have I, a very I trusting have, face. I don't know why. Maybe non-judgmental. Uh-huh. And part of that is that I, I guess that was an adaptation coming from a very very straight-laced culture into you know the rock and roll world of New York in the late seventies. Right. You must have found that the access that you were given depended on the title that you were writing for. What would sit was people like the be all end all? Uh, well, uh, we had unbelievable access at mm-hmm. that point. Part of the deal of doing a story with People Magazine is you they had to let photographers into the house to photograph them in their house, and usually it involved one or two long interview sessions, Mm -hmm. usually in their house, and uh, that was just part of the deal. Now, a publicist would never allow the kind of access that we had. I was able to go on the road and ride with uh, Ozzy Osbourne for, you know, three or four days and see the hijinks that went on. Uh, So (laughs) when I was working for People Magazine, it was a more open time. Right. It was it was less tabloidy. It was less controlled by powerful publicists, and that was part of the deal. They talked to you as long as you wanted to talk to them. Right. <laughs> and now you know it's like you get forty minutes on the phone if you're lucky. If you're it's, lucky, it's right? Not. It's definitely not fun. Um, you were very lucky to uh, have that access. Um, 
were you freelancing for people or you were a staff? I was a staff. Okay. Uh, uh, I was a staff editor there. And then after, in 1983, I moved to Los Angeles to work out of the People Bureau nice. there. Nice. So I kept the same title, but um, I liked Los Angeles. I'd lived there before. We lived in Beechwood Canyon, right below the Hollywood sign. I became a father there. My daughter was born in 1983. So I worked there, and then I moved to, uh, again, because of my wife, moved to San Francisco and worked out of the San Francisco Bureau because she went to the Stanford Business School. Oh, wow. Uh, so we lived in Menlo Park. And... Uh, on and on. And how? when did you end up back in New York? I, I ended up back in New York uh, in 1988 oh. okay. uh, uh, and lived in Larchmont, New York, and just was kind of a freelancer and uh, dad uh, at that point. So had lived a suburban life uh, and have two daughters, Alexis and Olivia, uh, so that was kind of my family life. But I've been back in Manhattan now since 2001. When you're talking to your kids, do you, I mean, you kind of can't help it. I do this all the time where you say, well, the time I was talking to Madonna, like, do you have those moments where you're just, oh, shut up. I've, I'm mentioning it again. Um, I, you know, I think that it's probably, they're just not that interested uh. in it. Um, I mean, I took... You know, uh, Alexis to see Madonna, you know, when she had the gold brazier and, you know, and so, so I took them to concerts and they got uh, got them in sync tickets. In oh, sync yeah. tickets was a big thing for me to be able to get for Alexis and Britney Spears was the opening act. And so um, they were interested, but probably about as interested as I, I was in, you know, Tennessee Ernie Ford for okay. my parents, you know. <laughs> I remember. Oh, that's him. really great, Dad. <laughs> oh, I'm really interested in Black Sabbath. <laughs> so let's talk about your archive. I've got yeah. a million questions around it. I'm sitting here um, with Carl, surrounded by um, a lot of cassette tapes, and I want to know when you first started. Were you lugging around a reel-to-reel? Like, we didn't have cassette tapes back in the 60s. How were you doing your interviews? A little, a little tabletop uh, cassette player. It was, okay. Uh, and um, I was used to that because we used to show little uh, slideshows in Bolivia, where oh. I was a missionary. So I got used to having a, working with a tape recorder nice. all the time. And we would show little slideshows you know, with uh, battery projectors telling you about Joseph Smith and his first vision. So I was used to recording everything that I did, and I have a terrible memory. And so the result of it is that this is my memory. My memory is all on those cassettes. So if you ask me very specific things about people, I probably wouldn't remember, but I probably got it taped somewhere got it well first of all why on earth were you saving these because i remember when i was doing my interviews my first interview was with johnny depp i taped over that 
immediately with my next interview. I, I, yeah. Keeping cassette tapes just seemed insane at the time. So right. here no. you are. Well, I, part of it is uh, genetic. Okay. My father was a historian, ah. taught history at Utah State University. So we were, he was deeply into you know documents and archives and work, working with original sources. And the way I would write an article is that I would interview them, I would transcribe the tape, and then I would write the article from the transcript. I had enough time to be able to do that, and I was a faster typer. Um, and you did all your own transcribing. I did. Yeah, me too. Um, I got very tired of it after yeah, a while. It's, um, it's really rough, especially, well, I mean, yeah. if you've got eight, like eight, eight hours 18 of... pages per hour of... Is what I figure. Wow. In terms, of, that's a, that's, that's, that's a, a lot. lot. There, yeah. And there's about there's about two hundred two hundred and fifty hours of interviews times eighteen. It's it's a it's a lot of stuff. You you're having your own podcast show on JasonCharles.net, the Carl Arrington Archive. Uh, how did that come about? Like, what was your inspiration for doing well, this? I knew that that I had valuable historical mm -hmm. stuff. I mean, I have three hours of Gilda Radner. I have James Brown. I have Marvin Gaye. I have people that are Ronnie Dio, people who, who, that are no longer alive. Uh, so those are historically valuable things in terms of the music business. And also, I, I, I guess I'm a little bit of a pack rat, so I kept them all safe and pretty well organized and uh, in pretty good quality all that time, knowing that someday someone might be interested in hearing, you know, what Catherine Beefheart had to say, you know, in 1982. It is, you know, it's, and that would be a very, I would imagine, not a large audience that wants to listen to Captain Beefheart, but maybe. Right. But, but you have, you know, like humongous names. And right. I, I had the opportunity to listen to five of your interviews and, um, you know, they're all fascinating, but, you know, some resound more with me than others, particularly Madonna. Yeah. Because, you know, she's just so famous. She's famous for being a difficult interview. Right. She's famous for being incredibly outspoken. Right. Were you intimidated with the idea of speaking to Madonna for the first time? I, well, I wasn't in the beginning because it, it was the very beginning of the Virgin Tour. Right. And this was this was the original street kid Madonna. This was not... The Madonna that we know today. This was the Madonna who wanted to be famous, wanted to do everything all the time. And she was fun and funny, and you can hear it in the timbre of her voice, of the excitement that she had over her life. Uh, the later Madonna was much more, well, she gave it all up. I mean, I think I must have done three and a half, four hours of interviews with her for that first People magazine cover. She was a very fascinating person. When she popped out, she was everywhere, and she was great, and she had the world's greatest publicist in Liz Rosenberg. Liz, uh, and so she was everywhere all the time, all at once. The other interviews were very interesting. They seemed a little bit more um, music business. Right. With Madonna, you were getting, like, heart and soul in yeah. those 20 minutes right. I could have listened to the entire thing right and and you were getting the first stories it right. seems like like right. nobody else had really had that full-on access where she was telling about her childhood and right. her mother dying and all of that did you realize at the time that you were getting this gold well you don't know what gold that you're going to get I uh, I always like to ask people about their childhood sure. and their high school because they're they essentially stay the same person 
And usually people have something to say about that part of their life. And it's not asking about their current romance or what kind of drugs they like to shoot up. But, you know, what were they like in high school? You know, Madonna, you know, told me how her favorite thing at Catholic school was to, under her uniform, wear orange bloomers and then go hang upside down on the monkey bars. And it may, it's Madonna. <laughs> it's that, very much. 100%. Very early. Yeah. yeah. It's that whole idea of who you are at seven, 14. Right. You know, you will be that person at yeah. 21. Yeah, exactly. And you got, you're capturing that. Yeah, and I loved hearing about people's childhood stories. They're, it's They like to remember it. it. They're not asked it that often. And uh, to me, it really informs who who the person is that I'm talking to. Well, the other surprising part for me, I have to say, I'm not an Ozzy Osbourne fan. Yeah. Didn't listen to Black Sabbath, yeah. was not. And oh. I know, believe it or not. <laughs> and so I almost reluctantly went to listen to it because I was thinking, oh, what can he get? Oh, my God. Well, you got real gold like he the guy told you everything like breaking the law robbing stealing it was fantastic yeah no he told me about his early days growing up in birmingham in the early days of black sabbath and he's a funny guy he's one of the funniest most uh enjoyable people to interview because he's hilarious that's his thing yeah you know he, he said i used to make people laugh so they wouldn't beat me up which back then, <laughs> which in Birmingham, England was an important thing. I'm sure it was. So with your Tina Turner, and of course I'm focusing on the women because that's what mm-hmm. my main interest mm-hmm. is. Is I love I love interviews with female singers mm-hmm. and musicians. Um, the Tina one had uh, who was in the room with her? Was it her manager? Uh, Roger Davies okay. was in the room oh. with me, and I knew Roger Davies because he had also been the manager of Olivia Newton John. Right. Okay. They're both Oz. And uh, I did the big cover on of uh, Olivia Newton-John when she was dressed in the "Let's Get Physical" that pink cover, which I was which it. is it was one of the best-selling uh, covers uh, of People magazine that year. That's amazing. Yeah, was T- Tina seemed a little she's she's a little bit more reserved, or am I misinterpreting what the? She, it, it depends on you know when you catch her. But she, you, the first interview that I did with her was before she even had a solo record mm-hmm. contract and so she was excited she I was bet. she was on the edge of being able to take a, another you know she hadn't been signed she'd played these uh, gigs at the Ritz. She'd done Saturday Night Live with Rod Stewart, but they hadn't signed. So she had all these plans and was looking for a producer. Uh, and so she was uh, she was very excited. Uh, and it, when it came time to tell me the nitty gritty stories about uh, Ike. You know, you got it, her her idea was that she was going to tell it all to me. Okay. She would tell it one time and then she would never have to deal with it again. Of course, that became the thing that she had to talk about every interview from that point on. And she hated that. But I was getting it fresh for the first time. That's one of the reasons why they use it in the HBO documentary, Tina. Yes, which was a great documentary. It were was you great. Were you happy with how they used your um I was. They, they, the, the, all the crucial things um, were all used in the documentary. There must have been five or six minutes of my conversation that were used one part or another. Right. Okay, so you're a guy. You're interviewing all these hot women. Did you ever have a crush on any of the women that you were doing? Uh, The truth is I had a crush on everybody. (laughs) 
male and time. female. Male and female because I, I had it. I had it was it was um, uh, I don't know what the word it was like having an affair with somebody for a week. I would be obsessed with them. I would listen only to them. I would, you know, uh, look back through all of the clips of them, and I would become. It was like uh, it was like becoming infatuated right. with somebody. <laughs> and next week it would be somebody else. Did you ever make him a mixtape? <laughs> I never made him a mixtape. The only well, Barry Manilow one time insisted on recording the interview at the uh -huh. same time that I did because he was, I guess, untrustworthy. Uh, but most of them are pretty casual about it. Like, well, they didn't want to be. I, I, I don't think I became famous for misquoting people. The things that were in there were all actually said and taped. Right. They may not have been completely happy with it. But I, I, I played it pretty straight in terms of respecting people's privacy, if that's what it is. Yeah. So did you become friendly? Like, were, did you ever have dinner or a drink with any of these people, or did you keep it strictly professional? There there were a couple of people who I uh, ended up having sometime friendships with. One of them was Joan Baez. Uh, I went to interview her, and for about a year, uh, Carrie Donna, you know, uh, uh, what, what you would call a normal friendship, went to stay at her house, went out to dinner, went out camping, all sorts of stuff. Uh, and the other person that I became quite friendly with was Carrie Fisher. I ended up having about uh, 20 hours of interviews. I was recording every telephone call I made during that period of time because I was doing a lot of freelance work. She would just call me from around the world. I'm in London. I'm in Hawaii. I'm about to get on the stepper. Uh, and so uh, that was what I would. And she, what she needs is an audience. Mm -hmm. And I was an audience. And I guess I laughed at her jokes. And I hadn't heard all the jokes before. And so it ended up being a fantastic um, friendship. What, uh, what was Carrie for? Did you, did you write her for people? Or? I wrote it for Time Magazine. Time Mag and it was uh, right at the time where uh, the movie Postcards from the Edge came out. Uh, Surrender the Pink Book came out. Uh, and the Mike Nichols movie was starring Meryl Streep and got wonderful, I don't know, hour interview with Mike Nichols, which is kind of rare. Fantastic. Yeah. Oh, I, that is rare. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. Oh, I, I do want to find out one last thing, though. Yeah. Um, Favorite person that you talk to and least favorite, and you can lie to me if you want. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, I, uh, uh, I think I think Carrie, because I talked to her so much, mm -hmm. and she was such a wit all the time, always on, and there was such an amount of it. Uh, that was one of my favorites. Another favorite was Patti Smith. I was with her on the final mixed day of Horses. And so I went in there and spent about, I don't know, six hours with Patty the day that she finished Horses. So it's a kind of historic document. Absolutely. Uh, and she was full on. I mean, she was she was possessed and inspired and in full uh, poetic mode. Uh, so those were two particularly good ones. Uh, w one of the bad ones was uh, was Lily Tomlin. And oh. Lily Tomlin went south. I had gone to see her at a show one time, and then we were doing a phoner, and I said, um, well, by the way, uh, does any of the gay material that you do on stage have anything to do with your private life? 
end of... If I wanted to, if I wanted that known, I could have the cover of Newsweek magazine. That's not the sort of thing you ask me. Blank. So that was kind of... Uh, Holy it, cow. It ended badly. Um, and then another kind of funny bad interview was that I interviewed Vanilla Ice. Flew down to, to Miami to interview v- Vanilla Ice. And he spent about an hour and a half telling me completely false things. Things that were checkable. Uh, and so it was just kind of a portrait of a liar, kind of a smart alecky guy. I, I actually kind of enjoyed being with him, but to have with somebody who's kind of a chronic liar talking to you, uh, he got his. Amazing. Well, <laughs> you know, I, I was glad I never had to do Vanilla Ice. I worked at Seventeen Magazine, and I oh, was yeah. covering oh. a lot of those. You know, yeah, and they're right. flakes. They're yeah, flaky. They I did flakes. Millie Vanilli. Yeah. Give me yeah. a break. Oh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Close to Vanilla Ice. So, are you? Are you still working? But you know, you're cl- clearly smart, viable. You've got all sorts of. Uh, I'm. I'm technically retired. Okay. If people want me to do stuff, I still do stuff for friends. Uh, but most of my time is spent doing art mm-hmm. and hanging around with my grandkids that live up in Fairfield, Connecticut. You're a granddad. I Congrats. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Now, we're sitting in Carl's uh, living room, and he is surrounded by fantastic uh, folk art that he created himself, and I'm very impressed. I'm sorry. I'm, I, I wish that we were still reading your cover stories for, for People and for Rolling Stone, but congratulations on, the, on your upcoming podcast, which I think I will have to listen to literally every episode that you have. Good. The first, so you've already done five um, episodes. I'll tell you what, everyone, as soon as you're done listening to this podcast, go right over and get to the Carl Arrington archive, because that's where you're going to find his first five fantastic interviews. And we've already talked about a few of them, but Tina Turner, Barry Gibb, Stevie Wonder, Madonna, and Ozzy Osbourne. And I found all of them equally interesting. I'm leaning a little bit more towards Madonna, just because it was just such a you know, such a moment. And um, so you've got you've got plans for many more of these. Can you talk a little bit more about that? I do. I, I mean, I have uh, dozens and dozens, you know, something like 300 hours worth of tapes to go mm-hmm. through. These are shorter uh, excerpts mm-hmm. uh, that we have. And I'll be doing, you know, my favorite over the year, Carly Simon, and the ones that I'm doing now with Ozzy. We thought... Each of these uh, ones that have uh, an excerpt have a big fan base. Mm-hmm. The Bee Gees are having a moment. Madonna's Sorry. always having a moment. <laughs> uh, Stevie Wonder, you know, global phenomenon. And Tina. Right uh, now, I mean, how, the documentary. Uh, 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 yeah. And, yeah. How, how global can you be? Yeah. So I, uh, all of those are, are give, you a, give you a good, it's like somebody dropped a mic down into the middle of a conversation with people. And you get to hear what they're really like. It isn't canned. It's real conversation. There are uh, sound effects, uh, 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 ambient sound effects that you'll hear in them. And it's authentic. It's, it's interesting to hear people who are not, you know, these are performers, but they're conversing, and you get a, pers- a sense of who they are as as personalities. Well, you're very you're really good at conversation, obviously, because I'm enjoying talking to you so much. I can only imagine 
you know, these big celebrities and they're talking to somebody you're a little unassuming, which is, you know, just a lovely way to present yourself when you're talking to somebody who is so assuming, you know. You, right. Did you ever feel like there was this imbalance in the room of like, I'm just little me and I'm with my tape recorder or... <laughs> The only time where it became really obvious that, you know, that there was a difference was when I went to interview Mariah Carey. Oh, boy. And uh, she brought to the interview and kept right next to her a big Doberman pincher. <laughs> so I did not make a false move. I knew that this dog would be at my neck, you know. Oh, that's great, Mariah. That is so fascinating. Yeah. Wow. I got to do Mariah. Yeah. yeah, that was an experience I will never forget. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, because she's one of the, she's she works at night, so I think the photo shoot and the interview happened at like eleven at uh, night. Oh yeah. Did uh-huh. you have the same? Uh, no, I, the, mine was in kind of in the normal middle of the day. day. I guess she wanted to get the time where the dog was up. Uh, uh-huh. so, so I don't know. I don't know exactly that. It, it's the only time anybody brought a Doberman to the interview. Yeah, that, that, I don't think that would work for me. Um, um, what what was your last interview or your you know your last official before you became oh, an artist? Uh, let's see, maybe the last. I did a, did a big long interview with Michael Bublé. Oh, I love uh, him. Uh, and uh, did Stevie Nicks not that long ago. Uh, so I do. I've done a variety of sure. things. Yeah. Who did you do Michael for? Uh, uh, I did Michael for his bio. Oh, nice. Yeah. Oh, yeah. so you participate in those as well. I do. I, I'm, a, I'm a hired gun. I love that. Yeah. I love that. And that's a Liz, um, that is. A Liz client yes. as well. Yeah. That's how I got to meet him. No. We love yeah. Liz. Isn't he, yeah, isn't And Michael's a cool guy. Very, very cool very guy. funny. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Funny and handsome. You yeah. can't go wrong with yeah. that. Um, so where do we turn to to find the Carl Arrington archive? So the archives are on... JasonCharles.net, mm-hmm. and if you just go there, it'll be listed under the oh, Audio Dramas oh, okay. channel. Uh, so each of these people that we've talked about today will have their own uh, episode, and you can also follow me on Instagram uh, at Carl Arrington Archive, and you can listen to the podcasts on Spotify or Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to get in touch with me for licensing and further development of a podcast, uh, you can reach me at carlarringtonarchive at gmail.com. Perfect. That, well, I'm happy that I got to spend some <laughs> yeah, time with you and really learn yeah. everything. Thank, Thank you. you. You can listen to my episodes anytime, wherever you get your podcasts, and live and direct on jasoncharles.net. Follow me on my Instagram at Under the Covers with Claire to see some of Carl Arrington's covers and to learn more about his upcoming episodes. Uh, you've been listening to Under the Covers with Claire Connors on the JasonCharles.net Podcast Network Arts and Culture Channel. You've been listening to Under the Covers with Claire Connors on JasonCharles.net. For more information about Claire Connors, a.k.a. Claire the Celebrity Booker, go to Claire the Celebrity Booker on Instagram. Oh, I didn't know this would be out this month. JasonCharles.net Deep talk, deep sounds. 
that was so deep.